This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. World War II tank gunner Don Evans sat down with the American Veterans Project, which was created by Congress to collect and preserve the first-hand accounts of wartime vets. After being severely wounded in battle, Don became a prisoner of war. This is his story. You know, the war is winding down, but you don't think it'll ever be over. You just don't. And there wasn't any solid line of defense with the Germans anymore from the North Sea in Holland to, to Switzerland. A lot of that was broken up and it was just solid places, you know. And uh, we crossed the Rhine River, and I remember coming down the bank on that pontoon bridge, and it was way across there. I think it was either 1,100 feet or 1,700 feet was the length of that bridge. And you come down on that pontoon bridge, and it goes down in the river a little bit, and it's wide, and it's deep, and it's running. And then you're afraid, man, Jerry's going to shell it while you're on the bridge. And, but we finally got across there, and uh, then they gave us a mission to go on. There was a big canal there called the Dortmund-Ems Canal. It was in that part of Germany where Essen is and Dortmund. It's all built up, a lot of manufacturing, <clears throat> one town after another. And Jerry had blown all the main bridges, not only the primary but the secondary, most of the third-class bridges. But our job was to go in this area. They thought there was some bridges there that were wouldn't hold a tank or a vehicle, but maybe a farmer's bridge where you get some infantry across. Once you get the infantry across, then you can get a little landing place there and the engineers could put up a new bridge. And, but there was three bridges that they had given us. The first two we went to were blown. And then we went to the other area and I could see down along the canal, that bridge was still intact. But we then we started firing, everybody starts firing in case there's some Germans around that bridge, and when they see us coming, they'll blow it. You, you kind of think the firing down there will keep them down, you know, and they won't blow it. But then we got almost onto it, that, then that thing blew up. And then we called in and told them what had happened, you know, and we didn't have anything else. And so then they told us to come on in, and wherever headquarters was that time was in another little town. And it got to be dark. And we were, once you get into Germany, you know, when you're in France, Belgium, and Holland, you know, they're allies. You treat the country nice and the people nice. But when you cross that border into Germany, it's different then, man. What is German is German. And what is, no, what is American is American. What is German is American. You take whatever you just want. And when you first got into Germany, the looks they gave you, you know, they left you know, you're not wanted here, you know, and they don't smile or nothing. And you, you just go into their homes and or whatever you see, you know, you just take. And like I say to GIs, he's after everything. There was pots and pans hanging on tanks and vehicles and you saw the infantry carrying this and that that they'd take out of German homes. When you dig a hole in the ground, you'd go in the German house, man, get yourself a nice blanket to put in there on the dirt and stuff. It was different then, man. <clears throat> and they couldn't believe it, man. 
you had come 5,000 miles and finally you're in their homeland. And uh, some of them would, were kind of nice to you. Of course, the German, they're the American too, you know, he's always after the ladies. So then they put out the non-fraternization law. Did you ever hear the guys talk about that? And that came out. And so, of course, a lot of the GIs, they wouldn't pay any attention to that. And I don't know what the fine was if you got caught. It was either $35 or $65 that they would take out of your pay, you know, if you got talking to a German civilian. So that's the way it was when you, when you got into Germany. But then anyway, they called us back, and that night we were in this German house. They're in part of the house, and we just go in. And, uh, but before that, before we had gotten the Rhine River, we, were, we got to the Rhine River and we were called back. And we went into a German house. Big, big house. The house and the barn is under the same roof. And we, we just take over the bedrooms and the big kitchen. And the Germans, they could have one of the kitchens in the, the other part of the house, you know, but we would take over. So we'd have a place to sleep and we would cook in the kitchens. That's what we were doing this night after we had uh, got up there to the, to the canal. And uh, then the, the order came down, they were hollering, stand to alert. When they hollered, stand to alert, the GI cusses like he never cussed before. This is one of the, the things out in Hollywood, the guy said, did you cuss? I said, yeah, we cussed. It was the first language most of the time. <laughs> when they holler, stand to alert, it means get all your equipment together, man, we're moving out. And man, we, we thought we were going to have a nice night. And... Then the orders come down. They said that now we're going to be pulling out of here and we're going on a mission tonight. We're going behind the enemy lines. And uh, you, nobody's going to be out there but jury and it's going to be dark. And with some kind of, they don't tell you what the mission is. But they said time was the, the essence. And they said if we run into any action till daybreak tomorrow or whenever this mission is done, if you can't knock, get out of it, knock it off, pull out and go. Just let it behind you. Don't, don't spend any time trying to find Jerry or knocking him out. Just try to get around him and go on with the mission. We did find out later on what the mission was. So then we, we mounted up. And we had, uh, I guess the, earlier that afternoon, we went through some of them barns. You were always scrounging around not only looking for something to eat or something to drink, but maybe some juries that are hiding out. And you run into a lot of alcohol, home brew and stuff. <laughs> and some of it came in, in jugs, man, this high. The basket whipped around them. And then you'd, you'd get in there and pour it out into something small and pour it into little things and stack it in every little place in your tank, you know. <laughs> and that's what we done. We, we had every empty spot in the tank, man. All the vehicles, two man bottles of schnapps. And you're listening to World War II tank hunter Don Evans, who had become a prisoner of war. We love having you hear these stories direct. When we continue, more in tank hunter Don Evans here on Our American Stories.
And we continue here on Our American Stories with tank gunner Don Evans and his World War II narrative. When we last left off, Don and his men were on a reconnaissance mission to locate and secure one of the few bridges in town that the Germans hadn't yet blown up. So we pull out and it's dark and uh, no action yet. And I'm sitting in the gunner seat. We had lost a guy the day before, so I didn't have a loader. But the, the tank commander who was sitting down front came up and sat in the gunner seat alongside of me. So we're going along, it must have been about 11 o'clock at night, I guess. And here come a, a German freight train coming down on the right side of the road, coming out of Germany. He didn't know how far the Americans were up there. We didn't know that they were coming either. But that tra- train was coming down there and everybody just swung their guns around there and shot that thing up. You know, and somebody must have put a big shell in the boiler and it blew up and you could hear Jerry screaming and hollering. But we didn't go near there and, you know, there's big fires down there and then the orders came to move on. So we went on and we stopped at 5.30 in the morning. And uh, we got out of the tanks, everybody just piles out. And just through all caution to the wind, it's just unbelievable. There wasn't any action during the night. We just didn't think there was going to be any. So we stopped to take a 15-minute break, give the vehicle a break and the men to take a break. So I pile out of the vehicle, and gunners hang out with gunners and drivers with gunners or drivers and so forth, you know. That's how you buddy up and carry on, get along. So coming up alongside of my tank was a guy, this guy from New Britain, Connecticut Vince. And we were smoking there, and generally, and it just started to get daylight, barely daylight. You know, you're very careful if you smoke at night. You know, you're smoking like this, covering the, the cigarette, you know. But I don't think that we had, it wasn't really dark yet, but, but we, we weren't paying any attention to it. And so then you have little stoves in a vehicle about that high, and gasoline, you pump them up, and, Put your canteen cup on there with the water in it and make your coffee. So that's what we done. We said, well, let's go back here and see Jim Cherry. So we're walking down the road. All our vehicles are lined up and everybody's out on the road. It's a very narrow blacktop road. And uh, we get near Jim Cherry. They had a big Sherman tank with 105 on it, artillery piece. They got the Shermans when we got the the light tanks, before they had a light tank. So I see Jim up on the turret, and he's grabbing the 50, and he swings that around, you know, and he starts firing. And here comes a German truck up the side of the road. He may, Maybe he was in our column all night after dark, nobody paid him mind. I don't know. And maybe he stayed in the column. Of, I, I, I don't know. But when he saw that, the truck swerved over and turned over on its side. Well, then all the GIs there, they're over there rooting through the truck to see what they can find. The driver is dead, but they pull the assistant driver out. So then they, the trash is all over the road there. I mean, just crazy. And uh, so then the order come to mount up. We had to go on. So I'm standing up in the turret of the tank. My, uh, my loader, who was a tank commander, he said, well, you, you got some sleep during the night. Now I'll take a nap. 
down in front in the white tanks, there's two seats, there's a driver and assistant driver. They're like little stuffed chairs, not very big, but they're comfortable. And you could sleep in those. So he went down and got in there. And I said, oh, I don't think we'll need the way things are going. John won't need you. So then a Jeep calls up alongside the, our tank. And uh, it was out of the scout section. In the scout section, your your platoon is <clears throat> broken up into the armored car section with the tank and the artillery section and the scout section. They have jeeps. So there's a guy when it jeep stopped. There's a guy sitting there in the assistant driver's seat. His name is Shorty Mercer. Shorty was the kind of guy he'd been in the army a thousand years. You know he'd never learned how to soldier, but everybody loved him. He was a little rotund guy. His cigarette was always hanging down in his mouth, you know, and always smoking. And his hat was always went down over his face, bumping on his nose. He was like that wherever you'd see him. And he would be always singing, uh, he was from the South, and he was always singing the uh, Big Bouquet of Roses or Walking the Floor Over You, something like that, you know, hillbilly guy. And he said, hey, you need a gunner, a loader up there, don't you? I said, nah, I'm all right, shorty. He said, oh, let me up there. I said, what do you want up here for? And he said, I said, it's cold up here like it is in a Jeep. He said, yeah, but I'll be out of the wind. I said, well, oh, come on up there. So he gets up and he sits and gets in the, the loader seat, which is to my right. I'm sitting on the left. And we go through the thing about loading the gun. He didn't have to do anything, really. When I would fire the big gun, I'd just pull the handle, the breech would pop open, the empty would come out, and all he'd have to do is throw the other one in, and I'd go like that, you know. So he got up, and he got in, got in there, and we talked a little bit, and, and then we're still sitting on the street, on the, the road, and, and here comes a platoon later from the head of the column, and I see him coming, I, was, I didn't even know what he wanted, and I knew that he didn't want me. So he gets alongside of our tank, and you know, and he looks up, and he said, where's Sergeant Selby? I said, down front. I said, he wants to take a break. And he said, well, that's okay, Evans. He said, now we're just going down here. There's little bridges down here. We want to see if they're going to be heavy enough or strong enough to hold the tanks. He said, and now he said, and I said, he said, then, he said, you know, everybody gets a chance to go first. He said, now it's your turn to go first. Well, nobody wants to go first. Nobody. And I said, yes, sir. He said, have your driver get out and go to the head of the column. So I hollered down to the driver, was Harold Asher, was from Kansas City, Michigan. I said, did you get the good news? Then he starts swearing. I said, do what he says, pull out and go to the head of the column. We pulled out and went to the head of the column, then we started out. We hadn't gone uh, 50 feet, I guess. And I saw a big red flash on the right side of the road. It just big ball of fire lit up. I jumped down, dropped down in the in my seat, and you do like you always do. You lean forward to look into the sights. Your right hand, left hand goes to your switches. You grab the turret switch, it's like a pistol grip. If you turn it left and right, that's the way the turret will go. But the more you turn it left and right, the faster it'll turn. Plus, for your two guns in your turret, you have the triggers on top of that. In other words, you can grab that thing, 
you had two triggers you pressed down with the thumb. So just about I'd lean forward, that thing had hit, the, hit that turret. Lit up the inside of that turret. Man, that turret got, got cherry red. And right away, our guys started firing on the Germans. And a lot of firing going on. The Germans were firing back. And then, when there was a couple of minutes, our guys done what we were told to do to break it off. So they broke off the fire and went on. So Asher, the driver, had bailed out, so I bailed out. And I knew I was hurt, but I didn't know that I couldn't see. And But I knew, I was pretty sure that where that, turret, that shell had hit, it had killed Shorty. I'd jump out on the sponsor and I'd jump as far as I could to get away from the tank. The tank's burning. And down in the ditch. And Asher is in the ditch. And now the ammo is starting to go off in the tank. And the Germans aren't even coming to us. I hear the Germans talking. And I'm laying there in the ditch. And I really thought I was going to die. I really wanted to die. I thought if I looked that bad the way I thought I felt, you know, I didn't want to go back home. And then I thought... We are behind the lines, and our guys are going. Nobody will find our bodies. Nobody, my family will never know what happened to me. So then we're laying in the ditch, and the Germans still haven't come for us. But everything's quiet, except the fire burning in the tank. And I knew we were going to be taken prisoner. So I'm going with my hands in my jacket pockets here, pulling out some medals that I had taken off a jury the day before. I knew if they caught me with that stuff, it would be bad news. So then, just, the Germans are still talking, but nobody's coming for us. And you're listening to Don Evans, a POW tank gunner. Oh my goodness, the story doesn't get more compelling than this. Side in the road, in a ditch, he can hear the Germans. He knows he's going to get taken prisoner. He's wondering if, well, if he dies, and he'll ever be able to claim his body, being that he's 5,000 miles from home. More from Don Evans, his story in his own words, here on Our American Stories. continue here on Our American Stories with World War II tank hunter Don Evans. When we left off, Don's tank had been hit by turret fire, and he was now laying in a ditch beside it with another soldier as they waited for the Germans to approach. So I said to Asher, how do I look? I wasn't hurting, not much. And he didn't say anything. I said, how do I look? And he said, you look awful or something to that effect. The first time he went answered, then I asked him again. So then he's, I said, well, go in my first aid kit and take my, you had a first aid kit on your belt. It had a little packet of sulfur powder in there. And besides a couple other things, I said, well, get that sulfur powder and sprinkle it on my face. So he'd done that, and then we laid there, and 
And then I, then I didn't want to die. I just had a desire, man, for some reason I, I wanted to live. But I just couldn't figure out why aren't the juries coming for us? Our guys are going. So then I, I said to Asher, we ought to try to get out of here. And he said, no, we can't get out. And about that time, he says, here comes a German officer. So all drivers carry 45s and shoulder holsters. So of course, when he bailed out, he had his, his 45. So he says, here comes that German officer. And when the German officer is coming, then I hear him challenge him to put up his hands. Handy hock is the word. You don't pronounce it like that, I guess. That's not the German pronounce. But the jury knows what you're saying. And as soon as he says handy hock, I guess the jury went for his gun or something. Harold, Harold Asher shoots him and kills him. And still they don't come for us. And now I know we're dead. He shot that German officer. I know there's no way out, man. We're, we're going to die right here. But we laid there a few minutes and still no jury. Tank's burning. And I said to Asher, we got to get out of here. The tank's going to blow up. I said, I'm going to stand up. And I said, if I knew it was a blacktop road. I said, I'll take one step at a time. With my hands in the air, my hands in the air, maybe they won't shoot me. So he said, well, I'll go with you. So then we both get up and he gets a hold of me. And we just took a couple of steps. And then when he ran into some Germans, you know, and then they took us to, a, to another guy that was a German officer. It was a different story then. He spoke good English, but man, was he stinking rotten mad, boy. But I, see, I can't see, and I'm like this. Now I'm start, really starting to hurt. And I'm sure Asher had his hands up too. And he takes us to this German officer. Asher's telling me that he's an officer. And this German officer shouts and hollers at Asher, really screams at him. You shot and killed a German officer. And Asher says, I did not, I did not. And this guy is really mad. You know, if the shoe's on the other foot, you know, we're supposed to be getting shot by this time. That's what you do. Good thing I didn't even carry a pistol. And he, he said, we saw you, we saw you. And then I just knew then they were getting ready to kill us. And then finally he says, <coughs> you can put your hands down, I guess that's war. You know, and I dropped my hands. I wasn't a Christian at that time, but I knew about God. And these are two words I said, thank you, Lord. So they took us and they loaded us in a, I don't know if you ever seen pictures of the, the Kubelwagens, the German wagon. So they loaded us in that, in the back seat. And I believe this was one of them that had the roof on it, I thought. They loaded us in the back, but on the floor was the body of that German officer that Asher killed. So they loaded us in that truck and we drove a little bit. And then the car stopped, German civilians gathered around the car. And, and then they're talking. And then I could hear one German speaking like, Zwei Panzer, Zwei Panzer. Second armor, he saw my patch, you know? And then there's, our planes are, daylight now, our planes are flying around up there. And I just knew that they were looking for some, something down there that's moving, you know, where they come down and strafe it. Then I said to Asher, that's our next thing here, we're going to get killed by our own planes. 
so then we move on and then we're sl slowing down again and Asher says it looks like it's a a military something or other so we're ordered to get out of the car so we get out of the car and then we go in a little building it is some kind of a military thing Asher's telling me so I'm sitting over there Asher's sitting over here and then there comes a German in there and uh, he's talking of course I don't talk because I can't see what's going on so then he says something to Asher in English. So then he, he said something about, I have to go, I'll be right back. So I'm sitting over there on the bench, really hurting now, man. I well, just can't hardly really hack it. I said to Asher, when he comes back, ask him if he'll give me some morphine. So when he comes back, Asher approached him or said to him, he's really hurting, he's having some pain, a lot of pain. Do you have any morphine? This guy is arrogant and loudmouth too, boy. A very good English man. This is what he screamed out. He said, you Americans are supposed to have everything. Where's your morphine? Till the war was over, until this day, when they write about losing the war, they tell us about the materiel of the Americans. Yeah. And he said, you Americans are supposed to have everything. So he goes and he comes back with the morphine and he shoots me in the arm here. Then I laid out back on the bench. I started feeling pretty good then and went to sleep. When I wake up, you know, I'm on a litter. Asher's gone. I don't know where I am. I don't even know what time it is. I'm being carried up a flight of stairs on a litter, two guys. And they set the litter down on the floor. And then I hear some girls talking. And I don't know why I thought this, but I thought they were probably nurses. So they're talking between the two of them, the four of them. So then they take me off the, lift me up off the, the litter and stand me up. They take the litter and I hear them going down the stairs. And the, the girls are talking in German. I don't know what they're talking about, but they take all my clothes off and put me in a tub and gave me a bath. Would you believe that? and then put a nightgown on me. Me and I hadn't been in a nightgown, man, since I was a kid. And then they put me in bed. And all the time they're talking and, and what is sad about it, man, the only language being spoken is out of the enemy. Then daylight came, it was Easter, Easter Sunday, 1945. Then the nurses were in there and come over to the bed and do this and that around the bed, you know, and, and speak it to me. And, then the, the German would come in and he'd sit there and, you know, and I'd eat and he'd talk. And, and that went on for, I guess, six or seven more days. Then the German comes in one morning, you know, and he said, your comrades are coming, your comrades are coming. Man, finally going to see you and hear some Americans. And uh, he said, uh, the civilian saw a scout car outside of town. I was, man, scout cards for reconnaissance. Maybe it's my guys. Man, they kind of got me ready to, to get rid of me, you know, to send me out. Man, I was there all day, man. Every moment, every minute passed by, man, they didn't come. Man, night came, and still they didn't come. Then they came running in the, in the building. I guess it was four or five of them right here, running up the stairs. And I guess the Germans told them I was in there, you know. 
Then they wanted to know my name and serial number and my unit and did I need anything and how did they treat me and all this and that. And then it wasn't long after that, an ambulance came by and loaded me up, took me out of there. But it was quite an experience. And you've been listening to World War II tank hunter Don Evans. And my goodness, the details, his tank, the seats, that German wagon with that dead German officer. And we're going to keep telling these stories because we should and because you want them. And by the way, if you ever get a chance, go to the World War II Museum in New Orleans. It is spectacular, a great trip for the family. And you can hear so many of these stories there. World War II tank gunner Don Evans, here on Our American Stories. American Stories, and now we bring you a story brought to us by the Coalition for Better Health at Lower Costs. The term healthcare often feels like an oxymoron, but at Loma Linda University Health, they've sought not to see patients as customers, but as people, and they seek to treat the whole person through lifestyle disciplines inspired by Blue Zone principles, principles that encourage a plant-based diet and active lifestyle minimizing risk factors, and maximizing your health, be it physical, mental, or spiritual. You can find out more about Blue Zones through Dan Buettner's book, The Blue Zones. Andrew Millard's primary work is with Loma Linda's proton cancer patients, and today he tells a bit of his own story, as well as the story of the patients that he comes across. Here's Andrew. I tried to get out of healthcare. Um, a couple different times, um, and uh, I, I just kept getting getting pulled back into it. I've got experience in the whole nursing home industry. I did a, a year doing nursing home administration uh, for a company that uh, that used to own about 50 nursing homes in California, and I, I didn't like being a part of that experience because it, one, it kind of just felt like a trap. People come and they stay, and they they kind of have to be there and they don't want to be there. They don't like to be there. It's complete opposite from the way Loma Linda is, you know, with our patients now, because, um, you know, uh, people are here by choice now and they want to be here and they love this. The experience is just completely flipped on, on its, on its back here because in nursing homes, there's no quality of life, but here that's all that we're doing is teaching the quality of life and showing people what quality of life can be like. I manage the patient services department here in Loma Linda, a very, very unique uh, department down here. There's actually only only two of us, but we're very um, connected with the patients and providing them with, with housing and connecting them with resources in the community so that they can come and be here. Because coming and being here is like a you know nine week, 10 week investment. So it really kind of unplugs you from your life to come down here. So we get to kind of be there with them, assisting them in that process and in the journey while they're down here. 
and we use these Blue Zones um, topics. We have educational speakers that come in all the time and speak to our patients. Uh, once a week during our special support group, we bring in a speaker and we talk about Blue Zone nutrition, you know, and what it means to, to eat healthy, um, you know, to get away from foods that are more processed and get into the less processed, less refined, just more natural foods and, and natural existence. Uh, they talk about that sort of thing. They talk about the Blue Zone community and how really connecting with people and having a, a community to belong to um, can add, I think Dan Buettner said, four to 14 years to your life, you know, of extra life expectancy. We talk about all that kind of stuff with our patients and they're here for this, this, uh, this journey for nine weeks you know, while they're down here and they learn all this stuff, you know, they get to be a part of all of this while they're here. It's, it's so, so much fun to be involved with and, and just see the transformation that happens in people when, they, when it clicks with them. And you can tell when it's clicked because then all of a sudden they're interested and they're asking questions and they want to know more. And they're really like connected with it. It's like they've got something, they don't want to let it go. Um, but the, the camaraderie, the experience here is, is not unlike an experience about like going to war. These guys, you know, they go to war and they're, you know, they're sleeping in tents together. They're sleeping behind rocks. You know, they're, they're day in and day out. They're, they're at war. They're in the front lines. Well, these people here are in the front lines of fighting cancer. And so it's a similar experience. They're going through this with their buddy next to them and they have to rely on their buddy next to them, you know, because they've got questions, they've got experiences, they've got difficult things that they're going through while they're down here too. And lots of times just having somebody to talk to about those sorts of, you know, difficult things is really, really helpful for them. This kind of thing, these two people, three people, you know, we have 20, 25 people come into our group. They just get together and they share with each other and they uplift each other and encourage each other. And these people are, are bringing, I mean, it's incredible what, what they end up doing as a result. They're, they're here being treated for cancer, but they're going around the hospital and they're praying for other people in the hospital because they want to be part of the healing experience. They're building wooden toys. I had a guy recently was uh, built a bunch of wooden toys and brought them into the children's hospital around Christmas time to like give the kids something to do. You know, they're here and they're in the middle of the healing and they're contributing to the healing of others. And so that's just like mind boggling for me. Our proton patients in the community are like well known for being just incredible patients. The restaurants we go to are like, hey, what are we celebrating this evening? You know, or is there a birthday? And people are like, oh, we're here being treated for cancer. And then, you know, we hear our waitress say, wait, what? You guys have been laughing and joking around this whole time. What is going on here? You guys are kind of weird, you know? Um, it's, it's just incredible, like what, what can happen with that. And it's just, it's just the fact that people here, they care so much about um, getting the most out of life and just being alive to its fullest, whatever that means, that means physically, mentally, or spiritually, just being alive and they're excited about it. So I'm, I'm in a unique position to where I get to kind of marry the Blue Zone community and men mentality of this, of this area, this community. Uh, I get to marry that with the treatment that we're doing here with Proton. Lots of them consider it a new lease on life. There's a, there's a publication, a research publication one of our patients shared recently about how uh, men who are treated 
for prostate cancer, lots of times, you know, take a new perspective on life after treatment. You know, once they've taken care of this cancer thing and it's behind them, and, you know, they, they've, they've recovered, they've healed, they're, they're, they're in better health than before. Um, and it's actually like a, a, a researched fact. There's statistical numbers on it. Like it's pretty impressive. Um, so that sort of thing happens when we start to kind of think that that our, our our lifespan may be, you know, coming to an end. Like it really does a number on our psyche. It really does a number on our minds. Um, and people don't know what to do with that. You know, they get scared. They don't know what to do with that. Am I going to die? Well, then what's going to happen to my family? Well when they come down here, you know, and they start experiencing this sort of just uplifting, wholesome environment, the body becomes like a, a more healing, anti-inflammatory state because it's like, you know, it's all this positivity you're surrounding yourself with and this exercise that they're doing and all of this sort of thing. So not only do they get a better edge on cancer, you know, a better chance to, to beat cancer, they, they learn about, you know, about God. And so that helps with the mind. You think, well, well hang on, even if the end is tomorrow, you know, it doesn't have to be the end forever. Well, that's an interesting perspective. So these people are thinking about this sort of thing. You know, we talk about this sort of thing in our groups and that really helps with the healing too, you know, because we're not meant to be stressed out and fearful, you know? How many times does it says, you know, have no fear. I have not given you a spirit of fear in the Bible. And that's, you know, it's, that's not something that people experience while they're here. They experience a, a, a love, you know, a really unique love. The first week that I was here, I was taking pictures in the bathrooms. I was, this could sound weird, but I was taking pictures in the bathrooms of the uh, of the Bible verses that people put on the walls here. Like you go into the bathrooms and there's uplifting Bible verses in the stalls and stuff. And for me, it was like, what kind of uplifting place is this? So I'd sit, I'd take these pictures and send it to my wife, um, you know, and she'd kind of get a giggle out of it. It was really cool. It's amazing to me to be able to see the transformation that happened. We do a graduation ceremony for all of our patients that are leaving. Uh, and Tuesday nights we get together, we have this potluck and we have the, the graduation programs. And so people that are getting up and leaving us, you know, they tell about their journey and their experience and, you know, what's happened to them. Um, well, just last week we had a guy from Jersey uh, who, who graduated um, and he started a journal while he came down here. Uh, and so the first entries in his journal he told us were, um, I didn't read his journal, but he told us about his journal. And he said the first entries were, um, you know, things like, oh, you know, we went to go get treatment today. Uh, uh, I had a sandwich at the cafeteria and then, um, you know, about six o'clock tonight, uh, I was gonna catch the game and then we went to bed, you know? I mean, it was just basic stuff like that. But at the end of his journal, after, after his nine weeks of being here, the things that he was exploring about his beliefs and his spirituality and his his growth, just the depth that he got into in his journal was just night and day from the beginning to the end because because of this whole experience. He's writing about, you know, what's next for him and his family and, and his dreams and his visions of the future, you know, with these high hopes and dreams of affecting change in his community going home. And it's not writing about a sandwich that you ate for lunch, that's for sure. The transformation that he had was huge. And he he's one of the guys that left here and said, Andrew, this place is incredible. I We consider this our radiation vacation. You know, we came here for treatment of cancer and we got treatment for everything. So uh, it was a very heartfelt, I mean, we had a full-blown church service that night because everybody was just like, we didn't, we don't feel like we got here by accident. Nobody lands here by accident. 
So I, I, I love hearing those stories, you know, I mean, it's, it's, there, there's something happening here. And really, we got to give credit where credit's due, man. God's responsible for this place. It's not a coincidence that this small institution in Southern California became the world's very first hospital-based proton treatment center. That's amazing. It should have been some huge organization to do that, but no, Loma Linda was the first one to do it. That's incredible. And it's it's just so happens to be one of the blue zones now, and it's like, it's, it's working. So I love being a part of it, man. I, I love it. And you've been listening to Andrew Millard's voice, and it's the voice of many who work at this remarkable place called Loma Linda University Health. And the proton cancer patients, I almost want to chase them down. Because my goodness, calling something your radiation vacation? Well, that's some kind of hospital. Andrew Millard's story, our Better Health at Lower Cost series, brought to us by the great folks at the Stetson Family Office, here on Our American Story. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And today we have a listener's story from Lois Fink. Her cousin heard us on our station in Jacksonville and suggested she reach out to us. Lois has had Crohn's disease almost her whole life. Crohn's is an inflammatory bowel disease that can affect any part of your digestive tract. She wrote a book about this journey titled Courage Takes Guts, Lesson Learned from a Lost Colon, which is available on Amazon.com. We would also like to thank Colorado State University and their radio station, KCSU, for allowing Lois to use their studio to get this amazing story down. And now, in her own voice, She shares with us her story. Here's Lois. An early memory that I have that is pretty ingrained in my mind is being sick. I didn't know what was wrong with me, but I started having symptoms of Crohn's disease as early as 9 and 10. I would have stomach aches that would come and go. I would have fevers that would spike quickly and then subside. And I just didn't feel good. I was embarrassed to talk to my mom about it because how does a young girl talk to her mother about stomach cramps and fevers and some diarrhea? As I got older, I remember being in, I think it was fifth or sixth grade, and we saw a movie and it was called becoming a woman and it was filled with stirring soft music about that time that we would become a woman our bodies would change because of something called hormones they never really showed you what a hormone looked like but these entities would travel through your body and make changes and you would develop breasts 
and you would have your period and it would appear in your little panties as a, an adorable little pattern. And my girlfriends were all getting their periods and they were starting to wear training bras. And there I was. I waited and I waited, but nothing happened. And I thought, maybe, maybe I need to go for help. My grandmother had a big influence on my life and she died when I was in the fourth grade. And I remember feeling that I could talk to her at night and as if something, a part of her could still hear me. And I realized though, that if I needed help, I needed to go to a higher source. And I asked my Bubby Leia, uh, Bubby is Yiddish for grandmother, that I hoped she would understand, but what I needed help with really needed God's help. And I actually believed that if I prayed hard enough to God, God could bring on my period. So I prayed to God every night. And then I also realized that I needed to do something too. I do not remember how this happened, but I figured out that if I walked slightly hunched over, the front part of my dress or blouse would balloon out, giving the illusion as if I had breasts. So by day, I would walk hunched over, and by night, I would pray to God. And this went on for a good year. So I walked hunched over, and I prayed, and I waited, but I did not get my period. And by this time, I was having more abdominal pain and more fevers. I did not have an appetite. My mother bribed me to eat, and she couldn't figure out why I had no appetite. They even said, if you can just get to 90 pounds, we will give you our department store card. This is before Visa and MasterCard came into effect. And you can purchase whatever you want. And I really had no interest in clothes. They just hung on me. And my mother would be in the dressing room and she'd be so, so frustrated with me. And she would say, look at you. You're nothing but skin and bones. Why won't you eat? What am I going to do with you? And by this time, all thoughts of becoming a woman really had gone away. I was in so much pain. And every time I looked in the mirror, I just saw this very small, thin, young girl looking back. And I did not have an answer for why I felt and looked the way I did. When I was 15, I was getting sick on a regular basis. In those days, doctors still made house calls. And he would say to my mother that I had a stomach virus. And I was given phenobarbital for pain. But he never could ask, he never even bothered to ask himself, why am I coming back to this young girl's house? And why is she sick on a regular basis every couple of months with the same symptoms? I continued to do poorly. I was in pain almost all the time. And my mother decided 
that it was time for me to look more like my girlfriends. And so I, the answer was a padded bra. And I hated them. Uh, they were hard and pointy. And I didn't like how I looked. And yet, if I didn't wear the padded bra, it was very apparent that I really didn't look like my friends. And changing for gym class was very, very stressful for me. I would use the door of the locker to hide how my body looked. I became terrified of the prospect of having to take swimming lessons, which were mandatory. And I knew that if I undressed in front of my girlfriends, I would be subjected to so much ridicule. And I begged one of the family doctors to allow me to have a note that said I had chronic sinusitis and therefore I wouldn't be able to take swimming. By the time I was 16, the fevers, the pain, the diarrhea were getting worse. And my mother became concerned that I might not be able to have children because that was something that she felt was very important and she wanted to become a grandmother. So she decided I would have my first gynecological exam and I was so terrified. I really wanted to ask her what would happen, but I could tell that she was very reluctant to talk about what would go on in the exam. Afterwards, the doctor assured both of us that my birth canal was normal, that I could definitely give her children, that she could become a grandmother, but he had no idea as to why my ovaries weren't developing. So my mother decided, okay, my problem is not gynecological. And this began a series of going to many, many doctors to try to figure out what was wrong with me. And they were all very dismissive. They really didn't know what was wrong with me. They really weren't listening to me. And so they just told myself and my mother that I was either making my symptoms up, that there was no physical basis for my symptoms, and that there was nothing that they could do. In the mid-60s, there were no pediatric gastroenterologists. So my mother took me to a gastroenterologist that basically saw adults and he decided that I needed to have a sigmoidoscopy. He was very brutal in how he examined me. And today, when you have either a sigmoidoscopy or a colonoscopy, the scopes are soft and flexible and you're lying on your side. Back in the mid-60s, it was totally different. I knelt down on a stool and my little derriere was pointing up and he very callously inserted the scope and I really felt as if I'd been violated. I felt so bruised. After the exam was over, he told my mother that there was absolutely nothing wrong with me. I was making everything up and I was simply a nervous child and if I didn't watch it, I would be a good candidate for colitis. My mother was totally at odds. She didn't know what to do. And in those days, 
If a doctor told a parent there was nothing wrong with their child, you didn't question them. So my mother began to have talks with me. And she said, Lois, I've taken you to numerous doctors, and they're all telling us the same thing. There's nothing physically wrong with you. You've got to get a grip on yourself. Because if you don't, I'm afraid you might end up in a hospital. And it might not be a normal one. Do you understand what I'm trying to tell you? I said yes. She closed the door. And I sat in my room in front of a mirror. And I said those very words. Lois, there's nothing wrong with you. I remember staring in the mirror and a little voice inside said, no, you're not making this up. There's something really wrong. My mother convinced me to go to one final doctor. And while I was there, I developed a fever of 102. And he looked at me and he said, Lois, you can't manufacture fevers at will. There's something wrong with you. A fever is your body's way of telling you something's wrong. And we have to figure out what it is. And because I had been so traumatized by all the other doctors, the, the previous doctor, the gastroenterologist, I looked at him and I said, you're not coming near me. This was the only doctor that really looked at me and really listened. He's the only one that suspected either Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. What I didn't know was that he had made a pact with my parents that during spring break, if I did not go willingly into the hospital for a series of tests, they were going to forcibly admit me since I, of course, was a minor. Well, Crohn's disease had other ideas. It decided it didn't want to wait until spring break. By this time, I was malnourished. I was constantly thirsty. I was having diarrhea during the day, during the night. I couldn't sleep through the night. I was sleep deprived. I was dehydrated. And now a mass had developed in the lower right quadrant of my body. And every time I walked, I could feel it moving. And I made a detached diagnosis without benefit of a medical degree. And I just thought I had cancer. And I didn't think to tell anybody because nobody was listening. And I just figured it was just a matter of a few months before I would die. That day when I got home from school, I was, I didn't have anything left. Pittsburgh is very hilly and I had to walk up this really long hill to get from my school to my house. And I walked in the door and I said, Mom, I just can't go on anymore. And that night, I was in excruciating pain. Another doctor was called. And he did 
an abdominal exam and he pressed down on my right side of my abdomen and I just screamed in agony. And he turned to my mother and said that I had appendicitis. And my mom was so angry. And she said to him, you mean my daughter's had appendicitis and the medical profession is just figuring it out? He didn't say anything except he mumbled if we had a surgeon. I remember being rushed to the hospital and prepped for surgery. The surgeon did come in and introduce himself. And he later told me, I took one look at you and I knew I wasn't going to find appendicitis. They opened me up. They found a perfectly normal, healthy appendix. But that's how the Crohn's disease was discovered. They could not operate because if they did, they would have risked a massive infection. And they closed me right back up. The next morning, I found myself on the children's ward of a hospital in Pittsburgh, and I was so angry. I figured I was a sophisticated 17-year-old. What was I doing on the children's floor? In walked a doctor, and he introduced himself as a gastroenterologist. He asked me if I could notice anything different. And I had to stop and think. And I said, yes. This is the first night I have spent in almost two years, and I haven't been in pain. And he asked if I wanted to know why. And of course, I thought, is this guy crazy or something? Of course I want to know. So I spit out the words, yes. And he pointed to the IV that I had in my arm, and he said, well, you're getting IV steroids. You have Crohn's disease and you weigh 62 pounds. I thought, Crohn's disease, what is this? I'd never heard of it. It felt like a disease for really, really old people. Crohn's disease is a disease of the gastrointestinal system. Crohn's disease can strike anywhere from mouth to anus, whereas ulcerative colitis only affects the colon. Crohn's disease affects all layers of the bowel wall. And so in that respect, it's so much more damaging. Whereas ulcerative colitis only affects the inner lining of the colon. Together, Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis are collectively known by the umbrella term of inflammatory bowel disease, IBD, which is not irritable bowel syndrome, which is known as IBS. I spent three weeks in the hospital. I was not allowed to go back to school. They felt that my physical, emotional, and psychological health were just too compromised, so I was homeschooled. I was put on high doses of steroids, so my face blew up, my whole body blew up. I would look in the mirror, and I really didn't recognize myself. I was also put on a very restrictive diet. And so, again, I've just felt so isolated from my friends. I looked different. I couldn't eat a normal teenage diet. And I couldn't go back to school. I had my first bowel resection 
when I was 17. A portion of the diseased bowel is removed. The ends of the bowel are sutured together. And that basically is a bowel resection. After my bowel resection, I rapidly started gaining weight. I am excited to tell you I developed boobs. <laughs> I got my period. And life was fantastic. Actually, it, it brings up a, a, a very funny conversation that I'd had with my mother the day before my surgery was my high school prom and my mom was lamenting the fact that I couldn't go to the prom you know she had to drop out of school in 10th grade to support the family and I'm thinking ma I'm going in for surgery major surgery the prom is the furthest thing from my mind and I really wanted to say, and Ma, I don't have the boobs to hold the dress up. <laughs> anyway, life after my uh, first bowel resection improved rapidly. I was able to eat a normal diet. I wasn't in pain. I could appreciate life. I, I remember the first day I ate a, a peach I, because I couldn't have fresh fruit and it tasted so good and I just the, the sweet juice dripping down my chin was amazing I remember being aware of birds singing and how bright colors looked my recovery was short-lived about almost a year to the day the Crohn's disease reoccurred and my doctor had said to me we don't know a lot about this disease, but it does keep coming back. By this time, the disease decided to head south into the colon. And as it did, my life started really changing. I was put on high doses of steroids again. I was on a restrictive diet. And as the disease attacked the rectum, I had to know the location of a bathroom wherever I went because I really didn't have a lot of time to find a bathroom. I was afraid to be spontaneous. A walk in the park was out of the question. If I went to a movie, I always sat on the end. Not as my mother would have said, well, if there's a fire, you'll be the first one out. I wanted to make sure I wouldn't have to climb over a bunch of feet to run to the bathroom. It was very difficult to sit through a movie, you know, and see, see the whole movie. As the disease progressed, I became more and more terrified of going out. As more of the colon was involved, I experienced bowel incontinence, which is something that people don't like to talk about and I remember one time not being able to get to the bathroom in time and it was very physically it was very emotionally and psychologically damaging because 
I'd had a horrific accident and I had to drive home and it took forever to feel like I could get clean and I, I threw the jeans away. I, I couldn't bear to have them. They were just a reminder of what was happening to my body. I was in my mid-twenties by then. I was living in Denver. And I was beginning to hate myself. I was beginning to be filled with, with a lot of loathing and self-hatred. And I was terrified to share what I was going through with very many people because I figured if I didn't like myself how could anybody else like me and if I shared with anybody what what I really went through how could they be not not be disgusted because I was so disgusted with myself so very very few friends knew what what I was going through I I changed my life to accommodate Crohn's disease I wouldn't wear shorts. If I was wearing shorts and I had an accident, you would know it. I stopped wearing white. I stuck to dark clothing, dark colored clothing. And a lot of times I couldn't even leave my house because I was bathroom bound. It became, the bathroom became both my refuge and my prison. I had a second bowel resection about 10 years after my first bowel resection. And they operated just in time. The bowel was getting ready to perforate. Uh, a neighbor doctor had described my symptoms as, as trapped gas. <laughs> but as my roommate was taking me to the hospital and my abdomen was hard and distended, I knew something was really, really wrong. They did surgery a couple days later, just in time. I battled Crohn's disease for 19 years. Until one day I found myself sitting in my doctor's office. And he said to me, Lois, we can't keep taking bits and pieces out of your gut and suturing you back together. There's nothing left to resect. Your entire colon is diseased. Your rectum is diseased. It's now time to talk about ostomy surgery. And I looked at him horrified. This had been my nightmare for 19 years. Now my doctor's saying my worst nightmare is going to come true. And I looked at him and I said, no, you will not mutilate me. And I ran out of his office, and I spent the next two years fighting the inevitable until I finally became so sick of being sick and tired. I went through a colonoscopy, and I remember the doctor standing at the foot of the bed. He said, Lois, the handwriting's on the wall. And I made the decision later in the day have ostomy surgery my doctor said okay now I want you to talk to another patient of mine she's close to your age 
She's had her ostomy surgery from Crohn's disease. And you need to talk to her because you have questions that I can't possibly answer. And this was in 1986 before HIPAA. So I called her and we made uh, a time to meet. I got to the restaurant early and I situated myself at a table where I could see who would be coming in. And a few minutes later, a young, very tall woman walked in wearing a skin-tight jumpsuit. She sat down with a little smile on her face and she said to me, I want you to know that you can ask me any question you want. I don't care how personal it is or how, how, you, how you think it might be too personal. Well, right off the bat, I thought, well, one of the, the myths and fears that I had heard about ostomy surgery was that you couldn't wear stylish clothing. And here she was in a skin-tight jumpsuit. So I thought, hmm, it's number one. That's gone. We spent over two hours talking, and I asked her so many questions. You know, what about intimacy? Would everybody know? Would I smell? Um, you know, what would it, you know, what would it feel like to have an ostomy, to have a stoma? And she looked at me after about two hours, and she said, "Why do you want this surgery?" And I gave her some, you know, pat answers. And she said, I want you to go home. Here's your homework assignment. Go home and write down all the things that you are angry about as a result of having Crohn's disease. And I said, I can do that. And she gave me some samples of pouching systems to take with me. I promptly put those under the bed because they were just a little too scary for me to look at. And I started writing down everything that I hated about having Crohn's disease. I came up with 15 of them. The last one was that I was tired of being an observer of life and not an active participant. I put the pen down. And I stared at what I had written. And at that moment, a very important shift happened for me. I could see what my life had become. It was all there in black and white. And I thought to myself, I want to live. So, I got together with her one more time, and she showed me what a stoma looks like. A stoma is literally a small part of either the small intestine or the large intestine that's brought to the surface of your body and your abdomen. And over that, an ostomy pouching system is worn, which collects fecal matter. Either a portion of your small bowel, in my case, my ileum, was brought to the surface. 
uh, in other people whose entire colons are not removed, a part that's brought to the surface is the colon, hence the term colostomy. I learned that I would have a total proctocolectomy and permanent ileostomy. And once I saw what a, what a stoma looked like, it was no big deal. And because of this person and one other young woman that I talked to, my recovery, both emotionally, psychologically, and physically from ostomy surgery was very quick. I was in the hospital for a week. I went home, and my life today after ostomy surgery, for me to say it's 180 degrees different, would be an understatement. Ostomy surgery gave me back everything Crohn's disease took away. It gave me back my life, and it gave me incredible freedom. I very quickly learned all of the myths and fears that surround ostomy surgery, that keep it cloaked in secrecy, just weren't true. I didn't smell. I could wear stylish clothes. I didn't have to tell anybody I had ostomy surgery if I didn't want to. When I first was diagnosed, I asked my father, I was terrified, I said, why me? My father was one of the few who survived D-Day on Omaha Beach. He referred to everything in military terms. And I figured he was just totally clueless. And so when I said, why me? At first he said, I don't know. And I thought to myself, why did I ever bother to ask him? And then he said, perhaps one day you will meet someone. And because of what you're going through now, you will know what to say and how to help. And I looked at my father in total amazement, thinking, that came out of my father's mouth? I didn't know at the time how important and prophetic those words would be. And a funny aside, we all talk about multitasking. Ostomy surgery has made me the ultimate multitasker. I can talk in front of a group of students or make a presentation to specialized nurses. And I can have a bowel movement at the same time and nobody's the wiser. <laughs> My whole entire colon and rectum are gone. I wear an ostomy pouching system that collects the fecal matter and I empty it several times a day. I don't like to use the term bag because it has such a negative connotation for people. Oh my God, you've got the bag, you know. Uh, rule of thumb, whenever I have to urinate, I just empty my pouch. And it's no big, it's no big deal. Really, it's just a slightly different way of going to the bathroom. But, you know, we all want to hang on to our colons. I kept a death grip on mine, I'll tell you. <laughs> I didn't want to give it up. <laughs> so the days of 
being angry and hating Crohn's disease are gone. The days of being afraid of ostomy surgery are gone. I have my health. I have freedom. And I know I have a lot of resilience. And I know I have a lot of guts and determination. And what a great job by Faith, as always. And what a story. And what a storyteller. And it's Lois Fink. And by the way, the United Ostomy Association of America is a nonprofit and patient service organization that promotes quality of life for people with ostomies and continent diversions through information, support, advocacy, and collaboration. Go to ostomy.org. And the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation is a volunteer-driven nonprofit dedicated to finding cures for Crohn's disease. Go to Crohn'sColitisFoundation.org. And my goodness, what a moment that she had when she met that young lady breezing into her life, beautifully dressed, and so many of the worries and fears obliterated in almost a moment. And that question, I want you to go home and write about all the things you were angry about. And my goodness, she wrote down what she was angry about and said, I was tired of being an observer of life and not an active participant. And that changed the paradigm and arc of her life. What a beautiful story about resilience Lois Fink's story here on Our American Stories.